Welcome back to another episode of Messages of Necessity. My name is James, and this week we've got a bit of a special episode. Usually on our show, we interview a New York newsmaker, and then we have an in-house policy discussion with a few of our experts. This time, we're combining those segments. We're talking with a few members of New York's Climate Action Council, and then providing some Empire Center analysis throughout. But first, as usual, our spotlight of some Empire Center research. As New York's healthcare industry asks for more money from the state budget, two of its most influential lobbying groups are airing TV ads that make alarmist and inaccurate claims about Medicaid. One of the spots asserts that the state leaders have failed to invest in Medicaid, putting millions of the most vulnerable at risk. Another says that New York's Medicaid rate has only increased 1% in the last 15 years, which is causing a severe workplace shortage. Neither of these claims are true. In fact, New York's per capita investment in Medicaid is 65% above the national average, and it's highest among all 50 states. And the state's Medicaid spending has grown by about 100%, or roughly doubled over the past 15 years, including an increase of 28%, or $20 billion, since 2019. Continuing on the budget theme, former President Trump's indictment and arraignment has renewed interest in New York's prohibition on televising state court proceedings, but it also draws a spotlight on another Albany affliction, using the annual state budget process to cram through major policy changes. The state's civil rights law forbids televising court proceedings where witnesses are compelled to testify, though a new bill introduced this session would allow audiovisual coverage of judicial proceedings. Rather than go through any sort of formal committee process, however, the sponsor is hopeful that they can adopt this bill as part of the state budget. This, of course, brings us to the elephant in the room. The New York state budget is late again, and lawmakers have passed another extension for the state's budget to ensure state operations run uninterrupted and workers get paid. This one will run through April 17th. And of course, as soon as the new budget drops, we'll have our expert analysis published. So stay tuned for that. And now, as promised, here's that extended look at New York's CLCPA. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Messages of Necessity. We're doing a special episode today. You'll see that we have three guests instead of just one. Uh, and we're talking about energy policy in New York State. As we've talked about on this podcast before, uh, New York State has passed a sweeping energy law that's going to make significant changes to the way we live and do business in New York. As part of that, um, a scoping plan was passed at the end of 2022, which was done, the work for which was done by the New York State Climate Action Council. We are joined today by two members of the Climate Action Council and, of course, the Empire Center's own James Hanley. Um, so by way of introduction, I'd like to tell you that we have Donna DeCarolis here with us. Uh, Donna is with is the president of the National Fuel Gas Distribution Corporation, and Gavin Donahue, who's been on our show before, is the president and CEO of the Independent Power Producers of New York. Um, Donna, let's start with you. Can you just give us a little background um, about your work and how you got involved in the Climate Action Council? Sure. Uh, thanks, Tim. Um, great to be with you. Yeah, I've been with National Fuel Gas um, my whole my whole career, really, which is more than 30 years. And we are a Western New York utility headquartered in Buffalo, New York. We serve 11 Western New York counties, about 550,000 meters, you know, customers. But really, that's that's 1.6 million people. 
um, you know, tens of thousands of small businesses and manufacturers. And uh, I was appointed um, to the council back in 2020 by the assembly minority. And it's been, um, you know, nearly three years of work and, and a lot of great conversations, but um, some areas of concern. Yeah, I, yeah, that's that's for sure. All right, um, Gavin, same question to you, please. Um, yeah, thank you, Tim. Thanks, James. Don, it's always great to be with you. Um, I appreciate the opportunity. I, I've been the president CEO of the Independent Power Producers for 21 years. Um, we represent the largest segment of clean generation in this state. Um, about three quarters of all the generation in the state we represent. Um, and prior to that, I was the executive deputy commissioner at DEC, and I dealt a lot with a lot of clean air issues. So <clears throat> I have a particular bent on that. Um, and I was appointed by uh, the Senate Republicans back in 2019 uh, on the Climate Council. Great. Um, all right. James Hanley, who is a, a fellow with the Empire Center, works on our energy policy. James, can you just let's not pre-assume the audience understands what all of these um, acronyms we keep using mean. Give us a real quick overview of CLCPA and then specifically what the role of the scoping plan was in that. The COPC, CLCPA, which is hard to say, stands for the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act. Uh, which set up a lot of goals towards cleaner energy in New York uh, with an ultimate goal of 100% clean energy production. Uh, that is uh, no emissions of greenhouse gases by 2040 and a uh, zero emission uh, statewide economy by 2050. The scoping plan, which is created by the Climate Action Council that Gavin and Donna were on, uh, is supposed to be the roadmap to help guide the implementation of this uh, law. The COCPA in general is pretty vague about how to get to these goals, and that was the role of the Climate Action Council. And the scoping plan creates a lot more specifics about uh, what the state is supposed to do in order to achieve uh, a cleaner uh, environment, essentially, cleaner energy production. So CLCPA creates the rules, scoping plan creates the roadmap to some end. That's right. So Gavin and Donna, your role um, uh, on, on the CAC for the scoping plan, you were two of, I believe, 22 members. Um, there were three members who voted, who didn't vote for approval of the scoping plan. You're two of them. Can we, and I think that's kind of, you know, that's that's what's at the top of this conversation is why wouldn't we have voted for this scoping plan? And so, um, Donna, let's start with you. Can you just give us a little bit about what it was on the scoping plan that caused you to be a no vote? Yeah, sure. And I'll just give you sort of the high level because I'm sure we're going to talk more about it. But but for me, you know, everything I brought to the discussion was really from the perspective of consumers. Um, again, you know, we were a consumer, you know, delivery company here um, delivering heat to people um, in our region on any given cold day. About 94 percent of the energy that's being delivered to people's homes and businesses is through the natural gas delivery system. So we're even more reliant on it here than maybe um, other parts of the state. So so for me, it was really three things. One was reliability. Um, I did not feel that the plan um, went far enough to assure reliable energy systems for consumers going forward. And, and we can talk more about that. Second was really affordability. So, you know, um, assuring a transition that's affordable for consumers we just really have a lot of unanswered questions of what will this cost people and who will pay for it. And then really third, I, I don't feel like we we fully discussed other ways to get to these, these same emissions reductions. You know, there's other ways to do it without electrifying almost everything. And so th those were kind of the three key areas for me. 
All right, Gavin, anything to add? Um, I don't want to be redundant, but I go to Don and I were the reliability experts at the table. And I, I agree completely with Donna and the assessment that we talk about reliability, but we really don't identify anything in the plan to ensure reliability. And uh, we can talk about the details of that later. Um, the next issue is consumer affordability. For me, um, another issue is the fact that DEC is um, regulating our business through commissioner policies and guidelines and not through a regulatory framework, uh, which is required when you regulate uh, these types of permits and plants. And the other term for me, the, the term of using fossil natural gas uh, is an undefined term. And there were a lot of undefined terms in this plan that could mean different things to different people. Um, and to, to Donna's point, uh, the tone of this plan was ban, 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 prohibit, prohibit, prohibit. It was never about how do we actually comply and put that roadmap together that I think is something that would be really valuable for New Yorkers to have. Uh, so I think we fell short in that area, uh, in those areas. Yeah, and I and I think, um, James, from, from the perspective of the Empire Center, some of the work you've been doing focuses on certainly reliability and affordability. Anything else to add in terms of what you saw as pitfalls in the scoping plan? Yeah, in terms of reliability, the term pops up a lot in the scoping plan, but it's always kind of as an afterthought. It's we have to do this and, oh, uh, yeah, reliability also, which always puts it as second place when it really ought to be first place. And uh, rushed timelines is a big issue in this. Um, it it's a kind of a sort of a, an expectation that things can happen on a politically determined timeline rather than based on uh, what technology can actually achieve for us. And that's where a lot of the reliability issue comes in. If we try to rush to meet these very, very short timelines, like 70% real, uh, renewable power by 2070, uh, it's not that anybody objects to the renewable power, but can we really achieve that by 2070? Not without great reliability risk. And so we need to consider relaxing the timelines just so that we can be sure everybody has heat when it's cold out or air conditioning when it's hot out. Right. And then, you know, I'll give a I'll give away a trick of recording podcasts as we like to do these in advance. But Donna, I can see it weathering behind you in Buffalo. Yeah. Um, you know, in October of 2022, there was a big snowstorm in Buffalo. The power went out. People died. Um, so this isn't you know, this isn't us just saying this is a problem and being alarmist. These are real concerns that need to be taken into account if these are the goals that we're trying to reach to make sure that there is that reliability um, and affordability as comply with uh, CLCPA. So to, to that end, um, maybe we'll do a little bit of the getting into how the sausage was made here. What happened in the meetings for the CAC during the, during the discussions for developing the scoping plan in terms of having discussions about reliability and affordability? Um, that that it got to a point where you didn't feel comfortable in the end, but how did you how did they get to that point? What was that like? Well, I guess I, I can I can start with with a perspective and, and one perspective I would have is that, you know, back to this comment about bans. So, you know, in one section of the scoping plan and it was chapter 18, the gas system transition, you know, a chapter very near and dear to me because I'm in the, the gas industry. You know, I really feel like that has a great outline for what we need to do to evaluate how to decarbonize 
um, the gas delivery system. And there's ways to do it using things like renewable natural gas, blending of hydrogen at safe levels, and you know, hybrid heating. That's something where you're using gas and electricity, an air source heat pump with a highly efficient gas furnace in a region that's cold like Western New York, where um, on cold days, just a air source heat pump might not cut it and would need a backup form of energy anyway. And by doing that, it's more affordable because you're not having to build out the power grid to the heating peak, which is four times the cooling peak today. You know, So there's a lot of benefits to it, but we never fully discussed that. And even though we had that chapter that talks about the right way to kind of uh, evaluate and analyze and plan for both the gas and the electric system transition, we still in the buildings chapter have bans on using gas equipment beginning as soon as 2025. So to me, that's just a, it's a complete disconnect. And I think, you know, following some sort of prudent um, pathway that includes a reliability assessment is just going to be better for consumers. And really, we owe it to them. You know, from my perspective, reliability was going to be shorted throughout this process when the day the law was signed. Um, the ISO was never appointed to this council. And I think the ISO needed a bigger seat at the table uh, because they are the federally charged organization to deal with reliability. And that's uh, the independent systems operator. I'm sorry, the New York ISO, independent system operator. So their input was valuable, but it was minimal. Um, not because they didn't want to, but they just didn't have the four of it. Um, and, I, and I think James's point is right, timing. All of this is gonna impact our economic development future. It's gonna economic development uh, direction, it's going to impact how we deal with reliability, how we deal with with transmission issues, which we haven't even talked about. So all of this, if this is not planned properly and timed properly, we're going to have even more of a problem from a reliability standpoint, because from just the generation sector, the margins are thinning every year. Um, but we really need to uh, be more innovative as a state, be more forward thinking, be open to new technologies. Everything in this council report, in my judgment, um, and I represent wind and solar, and it's an important part of our energy mix, but that's not the only technology that's complying with the law or could comply with the law. And everything is around wind, solar, and storage. And things like Donna mentioned, renewable natural gas, hydrogen, carbon capture, all these other technologies, and something that maybe we don't even know today is it could exist or come out of the woodwork, um, we were closed off to it. And that was really disappointing to me. So James, I mean, just building off of that for a minute, I've heard you talk about this before. Um, when we, when the renewables that the CLCPA focuses on, wind and solar and, and then battery storage, there's some problems with that as being, as being primary sources. Can you just talk about that quickly? Sure, we don't control when the sun shines and when the wind blows essentially. And uh, battery storage is, uh, tremendously expensive, and we may not be able to build it out to the capacity that we need uh, because of that expense. Um, but particularly take uh, winter, uh, the sun goes down at 4.35 o'clock in the afternoon, and peak demand comes after that as everybody heads home from work and turns on the lights, turns up the heat on a cold day. Uh, the solar is just not going to be there then. And we can get extremely cloudy weather or uh, big snowstorms like they had in Buffalo, that uh, prevent sunlight from reaching the solar panels effectively. So the solar production can dip. Wind power, 
the independent system operator has a real-time dashboard where you can watch uh, wind power over the day. And yesterday, wind power was great. It was really increasing through the afternoon and early evening hours. But other days, it's declining at that same time uh, when we most need it. And so we always have to have some kind of reliable backup uh, for when the wind and solar simply aren't there. And right now, we don't know what that's going to be. Exactly right. uh, that's the scary part is we don't know. Uh, it, there's, there's no option to avoid having that backup, but we don't know what is going to be able to be there that complies with the law. Well, and I, I think I speak for everybody listening when I say thank you, James, for being the one who suffers through watching wind power charts throughout the day so the rest of us don't have to. Um, but you bring, up a, you bring up a valid point here in that not only is there this problem of producing it when we need it and we can't store it, the plan itself caused for there to be a deficit. If everything goes perfectly when CLCPA is implemented, there's still going to be a 10% energy gap at the end of the day. Right. Or at the end of every day, I guess, is 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 the reality of it. And without filling those, and I think this is what Gavin and Don were trying to get to, is without filling those with different technologies and allowing for that innovation to happen, then it does end up. I mean, the calculation of 10 percent is like two and a half hours of every day of every year forever, the way the plan is written right now. Um so, I mean, as we look at that, there are obvious solutions to this, renewable natural gas, there's um, there's uh, other technologies that are being delivered, there's hydrogen and, and you name it. What's, what's the biggest block from any of yours, any of your perspectives on allowing those into the mix um, for complying with CLCPA? And, and I think it's worth noting Nobody's saying that we shouldn't aim for these goals. I think there's two problems. One is the plan under which we're doing it. And the second is, as we've all now said, the timeline of it. So if you allowed for more things in the mix, maybe that would help. Why aren't these other things part of the conversation at this point? Uh, the statute is very limiting in how it's worded. Um, yeah. And for the most part, uh, a lot of environmental advocates were on this council um, and really have some preconceived notions about what technologies they like uh, and what they don't like. And, you know, Don and I and Dennis were the three no votes. We were not able to uh, get those folks to move. And it goes back to technologies that I think a number of people think are very expensive today, which they are, but we have markets to attract uh, wind, solar, and other renewable projects, uh, projects across the state and I think what Don and I are trying to advocate for is if we're going to try to attract those investments, the state should be putting money in to attract those other types of innovative technologies to come to New York. Because you're right, in a very few years, we're going to have to deal with the likelihood of no natural gas and what's going to replace that as a dispatchable fuel is, is what I call, when I give my talks, is, is magic because we don't discuss it. And it's a real, real problem. That's a much nicer term than I've been using, Gavin. Yeah. Well. <laughs> I would build on top of what Gavin said and say there's two essential problems. One is the politics, which he sort of alluded to in the writing of the law. There's a lot of opposition to certain technologies uh, and experimenting with them. Uh, there's not a lot of support, for example, for experimenting with uh, new modular nuclear technologies. And some people are opposed to all combustion, even of hydrogen, uh, even though it's emissions free. And the other is that uh, the technology isn't there yet. Uh, whether we're talking about uh, utility scale hydrogen or whether we're talking about 
advanced nuclear power. We're looking at one or two decades down the road before these things are really expanded out at full scale, um, which they have great promise, but we got to get there first. And, and I would know, as, as Gavin said, there are a lot of activists on the Climate Action Council. There were two academics. They're both chemists. Uh, they're both very concerned about global warming, but I'm not sure what chemists know about uh, electricity systems, energy systems. What there weren't on the council were very many technology experts or energy economists who could have uh, brought another perspective that's very important to this whole debate. Yeah, and I think I would simply add, I'll just I'll just choose renewable natural gas. That's one that, you know, the discussion was, well, there's not enough of it to make a difference. Um, it should only be used on site, say, it, say it's at a dairy farm, it should only be used to generate power on site. I mean, we, we as a utility, we have, um, right now there's 16 active renewable natural gas projects trying to connect to our system. They want to get the, the energy, the natural, the gas, it's, it's pipeline quality gas into our system so they can benefit from California and federal uh, credits. You know, so why wouldn't we want to encourage that for New York State? So it, it's not the only answer, but it's one answer of many answers. And it's it's not new technology. It's it's known, it's available today, and it can reduce emissions that are otherwise going to be going to atmosphere um, from, you know, uh, farm waste and, and food scraps and it's and more. So, you know, just, just another thing, I think a missed opportunity. It's not precluded, but it's not being um, endorsed by the plan. We continue to advocate for it. I, I want to just pull on that thread a little more. And, you know, the, one of the one of the initial deadlines we're talking about is 2030, which when you say it out loud, seems like it's really far away, but it's not right. 2030 is in less than seven years. Um, so the goal is to be at 70 percent renewables by then. Can we even do that? Can the state pull that off? Is that feasible? I mean, from my perspective, everything that's on the table whether it's a transmission project or a, a clean energy fund project, everything that is on the table that's permitted, that's been awarded a contract would have to be installed. So we'd you have to have no hiccups. Um, then you could probably get to 70 by 30, but I think we all know that none of this, none of these projects ever land on time. So, um, so it's doubtful. Uh, I, you can't say no today because they do have the number of projects out there. They just need to be built and installed um, under the timeframes they're committed to. Uh, and that's a big question mark. But I'll tell you this. I think if everything is lucky, you get to 70 by 30. Um, but there is no chance sitting here today that we're going to get to zero by 40 because we, you know, for the conversation we just had. Right, because then you're still left with not enough power planned to do it all by that point, anyways. It's zero emissions, right? Right. Yeah. <clears throat> right. So those are so those are two big hiccups. And then what happens along the way is, if we don't hit those goals, we're implementing the plans starting right now that are then going to increase costs on consumers, both at the business level and the individual level, and for taxpayers, obviously. And so by artificially creating these or arbitrarily creating these timelines that don't seem based really in reality, we're then putting hardship and onerous on people um, that we may not even hit those goals anyway, right? It's sounding like we're all saying we're not gonna get to zero by 40. So going back to the point that we led off with, which was we have to think about the timeline of this whole thing. 
what's a more appropriate timeline? If we want to get to zero, is it zero by 50? Is it zero by we don't know? Um, how do we how do we sort of determine a plan that would go the right trajectory? Well, to me, you have to have some milestones along the way. And I don't think I, I don't I, I can't answer that for sure. Maybe Gavin has a thought, but I think you need milestones along the way and, and look at how we are doing. What have we you know, what have how far have we gone with, um, you know, renewable installations to, to, to try to stay on track for the 2030 um, requirement? And why would we be mandating that people have to electrify um, things that could be costly for them unless and until we know we have that replacement in place. And the other thing, just to add to it, is that we talked a lot about at the council and our colleague Dennis Elzenbeck kept raising is you also have the local electric d delivery system that would need significant upgrade, not just power gen at the wholesale level, you know. So in regions, again, an older region like Western New York and a lot of Rust Belt uh, communities in New York State, we don't have any headroom in the current distribution system for electricity. So that has to be rebuilt and invested in too. So there's a lot a lot of things that have to happen, yet we're mandating um, on the demand side that people start using electricity for things, even though we don't know that we have the grid there. I, I agree with everything Donna said, but I'm just gonna add one thing to it. Um, the word is out that to retrofit a house in New York is 25 to $50,000. Um, you're not going to meet these milestones, even if we have them in place, unless you start talking about affordability. Yep. The climate plan itself provides no mechanism uh, to how to pay for any of this. And um, I am a supporter of putting a price on carbon economy-wide. My industry is very supportive of that. But how that's done and the details around putting a price on carbon is, is really how we're going to get there. Um, but the tough questions that need to be answered aren't even being posed yet. So I don't know how we get there when we don't have a mechanism to tell people, okay, this is what you're going to have to pay, and here's how you're going to pay for it. Um, and that's what's got me concerned, too, as a New Yorker. It's just the whole affordability side of this has just been totally uh, whitewashed, in my judgment. We've asked, Don and I asked uh, two and a half years ago for a consumer impact study with 60 plus or other organizations and they said no. So now they're gonna do a consumer impact analysis when they pick out the policies they wanna put in place and then do it, which I think is really unfair for repairs uh, because people just don't know what this is gonna, how it's gonna hit their pocketbook. Um, so I agree with everything Donna said in the milestones, but I would just add the fact that there is no identifiable payment mechanism in this, in this plan. Well, and if we just take a little side note, James, I'm going to ask you a question. So, um, you know, the, the all all of this on this timeline to point to getting New York's carbon footprint down to zero, right? <clears throat> um, and we keep saying that we keep using this stat. New York is less than one half of one percent of global emissions, and so it's coming at a huge cost. James, I know you have lots to say about that, but could you just talk about that quickly? Uh, yes, the Climate Action Council had consultants do uh, an integration analysis, which is basically a fancy cost-benefit analysis, and that uh, purports to show that the benefits outweigh the cost. But most of those benefits are a global benefit from reducing carbon dioxide, because uh, obviously carbon dioxide doesn't just sit over New York and warm New York, right? It moves around the world. If you take out New York's share of that and add it to the rest of the benefits that are supposed to be in the Climate Act, some of which I find pretty uh, dubious, 
you end up with a net cost in New York of about $170 billion. Um, and with the rest of the benefit uh, remain, you know, now on a global scale, it may be cost effective, but for New York itself, it's not very cost effective. And that's assuming everything comes in at the actual uh, cost estimates. Whereas these huge uh, public projects usually come in two, three, or even four times over budget. And if this one is just 50% over budget, then you wipe out all the claimed benefits. And coming in just 50% over budget would be uh, a surprising win for a big government project like this. Uh, the term we use is mega projects. So, yeah. Um, so thinking about, uh, you know, how do you create, and uh, you know what, maybe the next question is in terms of the CAC and if there is a chance to create some change in this, does, does the, does the CAC meet again? Is it, is your work done? Has it fulfilled its mission? Yeah, I think, I don't, I don't think we have any more meetings scheduled. That's for sure. Um, I know that we can be called back and that the plan is supposed to be updated every five years. All right. So at least in five years, there's a chance to get them back together and maybe amend some of these timelines. How do you do it in the interim? I mean, I know, Gavin, I know you guys are working on a lot of a lot of stuff in this issue. How do we sort of move the goalposts in the right direction? Be honest with people. Um, talk about how monumental this change is. The consumers in this state have no idea what's in this plan. They have, they're starting to learn when they heard about the gas stove issue a few weeks ago. But there has to be a better educational effort across the state to educate consumers, to get folks to buy in. And we need to be honest with people about costs. Um, and we also have to say to people that we want to transition away from some of these polluting fuels and move to cleaner fuels, not just say to people, we're going to ban everything you're doing. There's places in New York State that don't have the internet. You're going to go around and tell them that they can't use propane to eat their house. Um, while they don't have the internet. I mean, it is shocking to me how far this could go and impact uh, many parts of New York. What this bill is about, in my judgment, is to deal with something that's real. It is environmental justice, low income, uh, areas of New York City and, and downstate that have been plagued with a lot of industrial pollution. I get that. Um, but what we've done is we've developed a policy and that's statewide when upstate New York is essentially carbon free and we're going to upend the economy of the state to try to address real significant issues in the downstate region uh, on communities that have a disproportionate impact uh, onto these projects. And there's got to be a better way to address that. Um, I don't mean to ramble on that answer, but that that that's important. Uh, it's important to talk about because it's, it's a real issue. It's just I don't think we're doing it the right way. Yeah, and I'd like to just add, I think regional differences is something we talked about, and I'm seeing it here in Western New York, just in the last month or so, um, nine um, towns, uh, um, counties, or villages have, have issued an opposition to these bans just in the last month. So, and, and these are bipartisan, you know, they're, they're, they're not political, they're, they're unanimous approvals of of expressions of concern for overall bans in in our in our region because of the climate, because of the you know the things that we've talked about blizzards, severe weather, wanting more than one form of energy and wanting one that's um, weather resistant like an underground system is, you know to complement the the um, the electric system. So I, I think you know from yesterday's uh, Buffalo City Common Council meeting, one size doesn't apply for us. Our grid can't handle this. 
our, our consumers can't afford this and they don't want it. Right. And, and we you know that this is uh, a policy that benefits the entire state, um, but it's people primarily from particular regions of the state that are saying that. And they're not allowing people in the rest of the state to make decisions for themselves about what's in their own best interest. And a lot of this has to do with just allowing the market and the economy to catch up with what the goals are. And so this, again, I'll say it again, like the arbitrary timeline is one thing, but allowing the market to get there on its own, it probably makes more sense. And if you look at what all the major auto manufacturers have done over the last 10 years, they've all created plans to go to all or mostly electric fleets. And they did it without government intervention because at some point, the technology will be there and it will make sense for them to do that on a financial basis. So there is there is a lesson to be learned there, I think. Um, all right. Well, I think we've uh, we've covered this a lot. My takeaways are uh, too soon and too much and, and think more about it. Uh, any last thoughts, Donna? You know, I, I just think, you know, it's important that people know what's going on. So I think, you know, conversations like this are really important. Um, so thank you. And I think we need to keep having them. I agree. Gavin? Uh, just real quick. I mean, we, we Don and I have done a good job and James uh, beating up the plan and justifying why we voted no. But the plan itself in every aspect is not terrible. There are things in the plan to give the state credit uh, about the importance of nuclear fuel and nuclear power going forward. The fact that we need to preserve uh, existing renewables and we want the markets to drive these outcomes. Um, quite frankly, those are outcomes I didn't expect in the plan when it got done. So to be fair, I think we've talked a lot about downsides of this plan, but there are some positives in this plan and I was happy to see that as an outcome. Great point. James? Uh, I keep beating the drum of reliability, 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 um, because uh, Cost, of course, but reliability is above all. When the power goes out, people die. And uh, I've been called an alarmist for that. But the fact is, I am alarmed uh, about where we are headed right now. And uh, it's going to take uh, the the advocates for the plan talk about an all hands on deck uh, moment to to make it work. But I think we need an all uh, all fuel sources on deck moment to keep the power on in New York in the long run. Well, that's a that's a great point. Um, well, we can end where we started: affordability and reliability. Donna, Gavin, James, thank you very much. This is an important conversation. We'll continue to have it. Hopefully, we'll see you all again. Um, in the meantime, this has been Messages of Necessity. Thank you. For more news and analysis, visit our website and sign up for email updates at empirecenter.org. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Empire Center.